this is one of those episodes I feel like I need to tell you, the listener, that if I end up dead in the next couple weeks, I am A, not suicidal, and B, never go swimming with concrete boots on. I told you at the very beginning of this podcast that there'd be a wide variety of topics. On this episode, I talk with Ann Blake Tracy. Ann has been leading the charge against the overprescription of psychotropic drugs for well over 20 years. In this episode, we cover everything from the history of those drugs to Ann's involvement in high-profile cases such as the Columbine High School shooting. Ann comes highly credentialed. She has testified in front of the FDA on multiple occasions, as well as on talk shows and even Fox News. Now, I want to say this in the beginning. Ann and I are not doctors, and in no way should the things we talk about here be construed to be medical advice. Also, the views expressed here are mine and mine alone, and do not reflect the the views of the church that I attend. So join me next as I talk to Ann on this edition of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Well, Anne, I can't I can't tell you how much it means to me that you're on the podcast today. Um, I realize that that you are extremely busy. What was the name of, of your organization again? International Coalition for Drug Awareness. And primarily, what what's the focus of, of that group? What What is it you guys do? Are, are you into a, like legislation? Are you into awareness? What is it that that your your that group really does? Probably all of the above. All of the above. Um, people just don't understand enough about prescription drugs or over the counter drugs. I mean, there's a huge lawsuit on right now for Zantac causing cancer, and they've known that for 40 years, but done nothing about it. Right. So let me ask you this. Out of all the, the things you could have pursued throughout your life, how did you get to this point, right? What, yeah. what, made, what made you, what, what was the point at which you were like, okay, this is a huge problem, and and this is a worthy enough cause. I, I need to devote my time here. What what was it that got you to this point? Well, I was living in Salt Lake City, which I quickly learned about 1990, was a pharmaceutical laboratory. <laughs> really? And I was surrounded by people that were on drugs. So when when you say pharma pharmaceutical laboratory, uh, in in the sense, do you feel like they targeted that the drug companies targeted Salt Lake City, or that that um, it was just just happened to be some place where people were really using the these psychotropic drugs? I was told by someone that it was targeted. I mean, it seemed pretty obvious at first, but. Right. It was kind of odd to hear that from a Catholic fellow on the East Coast. And I said, oh, come on. 
Why would anybody care about a little bitty state in the middle of nowhere? He said, you don't understand. It's the only state left that as a whole has good, strong family and moral values. They want to break that to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. And I'm afraid they've won. So at, at what point did you realize it was a, a big problem? Was there a point where you're paying attention to this? Because you're a mom too, you're, right? You're a wife and a mother. So you probably have 7,000 other things, right? What was the moment where well, I guess where yeah. you were like, hey, this something's wrong, right? Um, right away. Right away. But it be it became progressively worse and worse and worse. I realized that that guy was really right. They had definitely targeted the state because of the steps that they took. It just, to me, it was shocking because the very first thing that I saw was people who had never touched alcohol in their lives becoming alcoholic overnight. I thought, what on earth? And there were two friends in particular, um, both of them LDS, which meant they were non-drinkers. But as soon as they got started on Prozac, neither of these friends knew each other. They were separate friends of mine, one male, one female, and uh, both of them were just drinking so heavily. I couldn't believe it. The one ended up in a psychiatric ward because of the mixing the two substances, Prozac and the alcohol. She went psychotic. And so uh, this so it really hit home for you. It, it was personal. This wasn't just um, right. an I academic just, exercise. No, I had just gone through the temple with this friend who ended up in the psych ward. So I was really shocked to see that kind of a change in her so quickly. And Did then, she ever... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say the other was male um return missionary an assistant to his mission president and he was drinking like crazy it just so both of them really stood out for me and so i finally they kept asking me both of them you know we know that you know a lot about health probably know a lot about drugs um what do you know about prozac and I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention. You know, I was busy going on with my life. Um, and then finally I heard the fear in their voices. And I thought, you know, this seems like it's a real problem for them. Maybe I better check it out. So I stopped by a local pharmacy and picked up a package insert. And there it was, plain as day listed in the all the adverse reactions that it causes hypoglycemia and my mom was hypoglycemic 
And so I had really looked into that because I knew I never wanted it. I thought that's got to be the worst disease ever because you can't think straight to know what to do for yourself because you start losing brain cells as soon as your sugar drops. So Mm -hmm. I thought that's an awful thing to chemically induce in somebody. And that's why they're drinking, you know, and they don't understand that it's just chemical. So anyway, that's what I first started looking at called AA. They could have cared less. Uh, I thought they would. (laughs) Right. No interest at all. So uh, there was a camera crew, news crew from San Francisco that were really interested in this in particular because one of the reporters that had that happen to her sister who ended up hanging herself so anyway they were very interested they came out to salt lake did interviews with people that had had that problem because I had a local bishop that I'd contacted trying to get hold of someone. And somehow we got started talking about what I was doing because the person I was looking for, her husband had committed suicide on Prozac and I had lost (laughs) her number and needed to talk to her. Anyway, he said, well, when I mentioned the alcohol, he said, I've got a return lady missionary in my ward. A young mother has two small children. She's drinking so heavily that her husband's having to stay home from work just to take care of the kids while she drinks because she can't stop. And he said, do you think you could help her? And I said, sure. So... I met with her and her husband and explained to them what the drug was doing to her and then started working with her to help her wean off the drug. And as soon as she had gotten past that, gotten off the drug safely, you have to go really slowly. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said, you know, I don't even know how I knew it was alcohol I was craving because I've never tasted it in my whole life. So when when I saw what people were going through, I thought, this is terrible. Aren't there enough alcoholics on the planet already? Do we need more? That's really sad. Yeah. So explain for me, because I'm... I'm kind of a novice, right? I know that there's an issue, but I do not understand the physiology of how this works. What, what does the Prozac do that would, that would take a person who's never tasted alcohol before in their life and make them crave that, right. Or, or turn to that. What is it that would, would flip a switch to be like, Hey, that's what I need. Right. I, I need to go blood sugar. Okay. So when that happens, um, that is hypoglycemia. So when your sugar level drops, as I mentioned, you immediately begin to lose brain cells. Okay. 
So the body will make you crave anything that will bring it up quickly. In fact, doctors are supposed to watch very closely for any drug that may drop blood sugar because it is so critical to brain health. And uh, they're just totally missing it all the way around. So, so that's why, why you crave why, it. Right. Why booze? Why not like a candy bar or a whole chocolate cake or ice well, cream? Or they crave that too. Okay. So, so may, so let me see if I'm understanding correctly. And again, I apologize. I'm a slow guy here and learning about this. So you got this person who's, who's, you know, maybe feeling off kilter mentally, right? Can't focus. Or, oh, no. or has... They don't even have that. I, you okay. could go in and say, you're having a rough day. Uh, you're just really tired. You haven't been able to sleep well lately. And you got a prescription for this. In fact, I've said all you have to do to get a prescription is walk past the doctor breathing. And I don't <laughs> know if breathing is a requirement anymore. <laughs> right. So, so the, okay. So this person, you know, Hey, I'm having a bad time, whatever it is. Right. We know it's easy right. to get, and they may get this drug and then maybe they start out maybe eating a little more junk food and then maybe now they smell, right. they smell the alcohol. We know that certain things within the body, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you're way more knowledgeable, but I know for me, if, if my, if I seem to be low in something, sometimes if I smell a food that has that uh, compound in it, whether it's sugar or proteins or anything else, it'll smell very appetizing. Is it a scenario where, where the booze becomes accessible? Maybe they're in a social setting and it just smells too good to pass up or something and they take it. And then all of a sudden it's producing the effect that they want in conjunction with the Prozac. No, they're not even around it. They don't have to smell it or anything. It's just, well, and if you look at anybody who's trying to quit drinking, mm -hmm. what are they doing instead? Anybody who's Eden. ever been through one of those programs will tell you that you will have every type of sugar available there is. Okay. The meetings are just full of it because somehow the body knows it's got to get that sugar level up. Right. Ask any police officer who deals with somebody in insulin shock. That right. is extremely low blood sugar. So, so and, the Prozac drops the blood sugar, and then, right? If if, if you know booze becomes extremely uh, appetizing, kind of once they're around it, and that's that's what they go to. Right. Okay. So that 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 makes more sense. So so you see this all come down, and about what year is this, Anne? That that this all begins to happen for you where you start to see this the beginning of 90 the end of 89 okay so you start seeing this come to fruition and it's a big enough issue that you have your local bishop reach out to you and say hey i i, I understand you know a lot about health and can you help this woman and you go to help her what's what's kind of the outcome there how how does that proceed did you get her get her clean so to speak yeah 
How'd you do yeah. that? All the cravings of alcohol left. It helped her get off of the Prozac. And did she ever tell you why she took the Prozac? Did she ever tell you what, what was the impetus she to said get She had no idea. She said, I don't know how I ever started craving it because I've never tasted it, never been around it my whole life. No, no, I'm sorry. I mean, did, did she talk to you about why she started taking Prozac? Oh, not so much the booze. Did did she like go to her doctor and say, Hey, I'm just not feeling good. I I don't feel right mentally. I'm tired. What, what, what was the the catalyst? I don't even, I don't even remember now because it's been so long, but right about the same time I had a guy who was, he was some type of a counselor and he called me and he said, you know, this is really a serious problem. He said, I've been working pretty hard lately, and yeah, I'm tired. But I came home the other day, and there was a little um, brown paper bag on my porch with a note that said, gee, you seem a little down lately. This ought to really help. And it was a six-month supply of Prozac. Mm. He said he was just shocked out of his mind. But that's, that's that, insane. I know. <laughs> so yeah, he thought it was pretty insane too. So that's why he called me. So let me let me ask you this. So you you go from noticing this on a personal, right? Right. When do you decide that that okay, I need to do something a little bit more. I need to be more visible about this because you've you've tested you've testified in front of the fda how many times uh five times okay five times you've testified in front of the fda and was that in washington dc yes and did they did they ask you to testify no you ask them if you can testify okay and then you go in and and you kind of testify and then they hear what you have to say at what point are you like all three minutes of it all three all three minutes (laughs) that's all you get if i'm wrong as i was doing my research on you before i ever reached out to you i noticed you were even on fox news correct right oh and i've been on lisa gibbons i've been on geraldo yeah you were on geraldo too Mm -hmm. holy cow Mm -hmm. so so you're when did you decide, okay, I need to get out there and speak more publicly about this? At what point did, were you like, okay, I got to do something more? Probably right around the time I first testified to the FDA. Um, because there were so many people there with horrible stories about what had happened to them. I was concerned because I had someone a doctor share with me brainwave patterns of somebody on Prozac. And it was a fellow that was only about 30, 35, somewhere right in there. And he had only been on Prozac for six months, but the brainwaves showed he was in a total anesthetic sleep state 
and dreaming while he talked to the people who were doing this test on him. I'm going, oh my gosh, there's nobody home here. Right. Why isn't anybody concerned? So I took those brainwave with, I took them with me to the FDA. And I said, somebody needs to look at this because we've got a really serious problem. You don't want people running around with no brainwave pattern. <laughs> right. With them totally asleep and under anesthesia and running around. I mean, I at least had studied enough at that point that I knew that's what PCP does. PCP is a dissociative anesthetic where the brain goes out, but the body can continue moving. And right. I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to be in that state. No. <laughs> I want to be in my bed sound asleep. <laughs> right. I don't want to be up running around because you never know what might happen. And Prozac is really just the tip of the iceberg when we start talking about psych that alter mental states that are prescribed by a doctor, correct? I mean, there's a ton more. So Prozac well, just seems to be... Oh, go. There's a lot of clones. They came out with Zoloft and then, and then Paxil and Selecta and Lexapro, and they, they're still pumping them out. Right. With different names as fast as they can, and they all work the same way. When was it that you could remember first seeing that, hey, these these drugs are really starting to be targeted towards children? At, at what point do you remember seeing that happen? Early 90s. And, and that's about right. So I uh, I got married, uh, married pretty young. I got married at at 18 and it was 1995. And I, as I was thinking, back, I, uh, I can't, I can remember maybe two kids in my whole class growing up that were ever on medication. You could spot them because they kind of looked, they had that far away look in their eye. Right. Right. Now from my own experience, I can tell you that after Gosh, I want to say it was probably 2000. I started noticing more and more parents putting their kids on, on mm -hmm. psychotropics, right? And yeah. the, the thing... You and, can thank Oprah for that. Yeah, yeah, I, re I remember reading she's that. She's the one that did the first show to really push it. There was right. a place in Salt Lake called uh, the Children's Place or something like that. And they were literally pushing it to small children. Right. I talked to a couple that they had talked them into putting their two-year-old on Prozac. How do you look? And a two-year-old? I've had six kids, right? A two-year-old, yeah. if they're not bouncing off the wall, that's usually a red flag that something's wrong, right? Exactly. Um, so... <laughs> I even it, had a chiropractor tell me that he had a couple that wanted to know what they could do for their child. The baby was only a month old and they had it on Zoloft. Really? And that was in Kansas. 
Yeah. So they're like just crushing up like the doctor prescribes a low dose and they crush it up and put it in the, into the baby's formula. Uh, holy crap. Okay. So, so you see all this, when do you, when do you uh, begin to form your group or, or your organization is a better word for it? Probably about, well, I started first, there was a group called the Prozac Survivor Support Group. Mm-hmm. And everybody wanted me to be the head of that group. And I was, no, I'm starting to write about these drugs. And I really don't think I have the time. And the following morning, a young man, about 20, 21, jumped right outside my office window and uh, the police he told the police before he died that he was on Prozac so he and had an, at that an point I said okay guys I'm heading the group <laughs> I won't back off any longer Right after that, I thought uh, somebody's trying to tell me something. That's why they say on those, on all the drug commercials, the you know one of the side effects effects could be suicidal ideation or or suicidal mm-hmm. thoughts. So suicidal ideation is not just thoughts either. It right, it is a compulsion to die. Oh, that's mm-hmm. spooky and. And look, I'm going to be real transparent here on this episode. I'm a guy who adopted a set of twins whose uh, mother was uh, on methamphetamine while my twins were in utero. And my, they, I, we've been so blessed because they came through without any physical problems. I mean, it took us a while to get them healthy, but they, they came through. But later on, Jerem... Um, my son, we could tell that he was fidgety, right? He was antsy all the time and that he was a problem at school. And right. this was, this was long before I had my eyes open to it. And so the teachers were like, you should really have him see a doc. And so we take him in and, and the first thing they want to do are cram these pills down his throat. Right. Mm-hmm. And because they, they were born with low blood sugar right and you know they they i i felt that it was and this is the part where i'm ashamed to admit Anne, is because i felt like i felt horrible doing it right i felt like this wasn't right but at the same time i'm like doctors have helped me nurse these kids back to health from the brink of death literally when they're first born i i gotta keep trusting them right i mean i'm not a expert and and i remember the day i gave my son his first pill i wept i wept because i knew something wasn't right but uh, and i felt conflicted that if i go against the doctor's orders am i putting my son in a worse position and so we did it right and then on you know and it was years it was it was probably five years worth and he's not getting any better and he started these episodes while he's on it right where he just gets angry and 
and a little bit aggressive. And I'm like, these pills are help. So we take them back in and they're like, well, maybe we need to adjust the dose. And I'm like, before we do that, let's, let's look at some other stuff. And they're like, well, let's go get, have them see a, a psychiatrist and a counselor. And so we do that. And then they're like, okay, let's go get him a full on psychiatric evaluation. We do that. And they come back to, we're going to up the dose. And again, mm-hmm. I feel conflicted, right? I'm like, I don't know what to do, right? And and this is my impetus for really reaching out to you is because I can't be the only guy in this situation. So me and my wife, we're, we're feeling conflicted. And we're like, okay, we're going to do what the doctor says. And we up the dose and plays is over, right? And he does that for a couple months. And then it's like he builds a resistance. And he he eventually gets to the point to where he's right back feeling aggressive, He's having suicidal thoughts and I, I'm going to call it what it is. Right. And, and I, I basically got on my knees and said prayers. Like I hadn't said prayers in a long time. And I'm like, this is your Mm -hmm. son too, God. It's not mine. I don't apologize for getting a little emotional here, but I was like, I don't know what to do. The fear of losing him scares me so badly. What do I do? But he's your son too. What, What do you want me to do? And it it was just that night when I said that prayer with my wife, it was very apparent, just stop the drugs. It was drugs that got him here and it's drug and drugs aren't going to fix it. I believe it was Einstein who'd actually said the, the person who creates the problem very seldomly is the person that can fix it. And so I, I, I looked at it at that way and we stopped cold Turkey. Right. And, <laughs> and, and that was, you know, cause I didn't know any better. Right. But I just stopped cold right. turkey and it was about weeks worth of, you know, combativeness and, and anger and, and all those things. But after about three weeks and it, it was, it was a miracle. He light came back into his eyes. He was settled down. This was two years ago today. He is a kid who does online school by himself, gets good grades. He he holds down a part-time job. He is full of energy and life, and he he he's either running around the neighborhood or doing sports or something. But he's a different kid, and he's so much better well-adjusted. And I check with him probably once a week. Are you having any bad thoughts? And And so I looked at that. And I was like, if this happened to me, granted, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I know it could, it, it's probably happening to somebody else. Oh, yeah. And in fact, every time I'm asked to lecture to a school or a youth group, the kids will always say, well, what about Ritalin? And I say, well, the chemical name for Ritalin is methylphenolate. So what is it? And they all holler meth. And I say, good, you're right. Go home and tell your parents they haven't figured it out yet. Right. So, so all that was happening is the poor kid was addicted to that drug in the womb and as they get closer 
or as they get further away and as they get closer to puberty where their body's going through so many changes, they will start reverting back to that addiction. Right. Because right. they need more nutrients that have been robbed from them by the drugs. Okay. So that's, yeah, in, yeah it's so. My kids so are adopted too, and they were both born with hypoglycemia. Okay. My daughter's father committed suicide at about age 18 or 19. They said he had so much alcohol in his blood that they had never seen it before. Wow. So, and my son, I found out, was conceived while the parents were drunk. So, anyway, I raised them where they did not get sugar. And they were very calm. I just managed their sugar the whole time and made sure that their diet fit what they needed to go through. And they would go to business meetings with me and just sit there quietly through the whole thing and listen. Wow. Yeah. All right. So I'm sorry I kind of got off on a tangent there telling telling why, why it was I felt like this subject was so important. Um, well, it's not a tangent. I mean, so many families are going through this. Right. A, a tangent as far as making it personal. But um, so so let's let's catch up here in the story. So you, you have several brushes with this, seeing that there's a problem with these psychotropics that they're they're administering to to people. You get in with the group, um, Prozac survivors group you become the head of that at some point i'm guessing that probably morphs into your the the current organization that you head now correct yes and i had written a small booklet just before all this part happened okay called so, prozac pandora okay all right and so Oh, then that ahead. very first hearing at the FDA was in 91, September of 91. Okay. So I met all these people that had been through this, including Dale Shannon's widow, who has become a very good friend over the years. I don't know if you remember Dale. I don't. Why don't, why don't you give us a quick, some quick background on who Dale was? He was a very, very popular singer in the 60s, 50s, 60s. Um, runaway, My Little Runaway. Okay. Remember that? Yep. That was his big hit. Anyhow, um, he had taken, he had had a previous problem with alcohol and had become a real health nut. He would not touch anything that was chemical it it all had to be natural his doctor lied to him and told him that Prozac he was burned out because his career was taking off again and he just had so many gigs he could hardly keep up with it and so he went to the doctor and of course the doctor's solution was Prozac 
and the doctor lied to him, told him it wasn't even a chemical, it was a mineral he was missing in his brain. And 15 days later, he was dead. By suicide? Yes. Duh. Yeah, his wife went to the grocery store just down the street, came home and found that he'd shot himself as soon as she left. So, so, anyway, it was so many families like that. And uh, as soon as I got back, I ran by a good friend's home in Provo, who was Robert Redford's mother-in-law. Oh, wow. And uh, we always spent every 4th of July at their house because they lived right there on the main street. And... Um, Anyway, they weren't home, so I just stuck a copy of my book in their front door and said, just wanted to update you on what I've been up to lately. And I got a postcard in the mail a few days later that said, thank you so much. This helps us to understand what we've been through lately. I thought, oh, my God, no. So I picked up the phone and called her and I said, Phyllis, what on earth are you talking about? What's happened? And she said that she and her husband had gone to New Orleans uh, for a vacation during the Mardi Gras and they got jumped and they were robbed, but her husband hit his head. You don't ever want to take one of these drugs if you've got a head injury. Anyway, they got home, um, and within a month or so, Frank had lost five friends in that short amount of time. And, of course, he was depressed. That's normal. Right. You lose friends, you're going to be depressed. But, anyway, they gave him Prozac. And within a week, they diagnosed him with rapid-onset Alzheimer's. And they wanted to put him in an institution. And luckily, Lola Redford's wife said, absolutely not. You know, you take him off this drug. And they refused to do it. She said, fine, we'll take him home and take him off. You know what they said to her? What's that? Good luck. Good luck. And doctors still claim they don't know these drugs have horrible withdrawal. But she was able to wean him off. But and then he, he, was, he was fine after that, right? No signs of yeah. Alzheimer's or anything else? No, suddenly disappeared. <laughs> what a coincidence. Right. Um, <laughs> so, so... You're, so, you're, you're really getting well-read at this point. Let me ask mm-hmm. you about some of the history on these, um, on these, uh, the, these psychotropics that are prescribed by doctors. Where do they come from, in, a sen- in essence, right? At what point does someone say, you know what, I think that this certain compound can help this person with this kind of, of ailment. Who, who starts, who start, uh, is the one that really starts the development for these psychotropic drugs? Whoever wants to make a quick buck. 
So what's about? So was this? Were these psychotropics initially done by pharmaceutical companies? Were were they initially done by by the government? I mean, what? Where does this come from? Well, when I first started looking, I read absolutely everything I could get my hands on, and. I ran across a bunch of information on the MK Ultra program mm-hmm. the CIA had going on. Right. Which is horrendous. Yeah. Oh my gosh, what they did. And not a conspiracy theory, right? I want to get that out there right oh, now. No. You it was go, real. You can go, there's par- still parts that are redacted, but MK Ultra in the the 60s and 70s was if i'm not mistaken you can correct me if i'm wrong you've done more research on this than i have it was a cia operation right. to and and it wasn't like just one program there was a ton of programs under right. um mk ultra one that i remember from my reading was one called my climax where they would mm-hmm. uh, hire prostitutes to slip their johns uh, certain psychotropics and then they would LSD. watch as the john yeah why the john would then spill his guts and they were like okay this is something we can use in foreign policy or whatever so right um there was a ton of sub programs if you were under the the mk ultra umbrella is that correct yeah and it all seemed to start about the time the cia ran Operation Paperclip, where they brought 1,600 criminal Nazi doctors out of the Nuremberg trials. Which is interesting, because when you go back and do the history on World War II, we know that, that the Nazis were given German soldiers methamphetamine them oh, kind yeah. of quasi super soldier in the sense that they just didn't fear death because they were so whacked out on on whatever it was they were doing that they were getting some amazing results so to speak and if anybody has any of the concentration camps you know immediately i could not i i had to run out of dachau i couldn't be there it was the most horrible feeling and the pictures of people holding their heads and screaming you knew that it was a facility where they were using those people as guinea pigs right well Welcome yeah to america today yeah well yeah and and we know that 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 Mengele had done a ton of stuff and we know that there were other German scientists that were experimenting with substances to alter, uh, you know, people's perceptions and people's uh, ability to fight harder and longer. And so this, you can definitely doctors and the media were hung after the trial. Right. Except for the ones that our CIA brought here. Right. So in your research, in your research, would you say that, that the first development, at least here in the States with, with these psychotropics comes from 
from the government in the sense that it's government yeah. funded. They they want to get this out, and you know they're they're maybe seeing some applications for information extraction from other foreign nationals. Is that kind of the impetus for how the how all these psychotropics begin to to find their way to market? Well, what I found before I put my large book out after all the research was that Congress caught on to what all was happening because the CIA was drugging prisoners. They were drugging military. They were drugging anybody that they could think of to drug that was in a position where they could get control over them because they thought LSD was the greatest thing ever. They used 80% of their initial budget to buy up all the LSD they could. When they could not get LSD that was grown on ergot fungus, which is the way it was first discovered, um, they brought their 80% of their initial budget back to America, went straight to Eli Lilly Pharmaceutical Company and said, we need a synthetic version of this drug so that we can use it for mind control. Otherwise, we can't use it in our program. We, we got to have it by the truckload if we're going to do this. Lilly developed, Eli Lilly developed the synthetic version of LSD. Um, to show you how much of a problem there was with it, some of the finest obstetricians in Salt Lake were giving it to pregnant women. So... <laughs> hang, t hang tight real quick. Under what pretenses were they telling women to take... It, it, I I'm have sure they, no idea. I mean, because I'm trying to make the connection right here. And where a woman you goes have a in, march of dimes telling them not to drink water from the tap, but obstetricians were telling them to take LSD. Hello. <laughs> yeah, and and I'm trying to think of of what Why? what would be the impetus, right? What 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 the woman's going in and she's saying I'm suffering from what, and the doctor goes, "Well, I got your cure." It's it, it's this hallucinogen. Mm -hmm. What happened after that was when Congress caught wind of what all was going on with MKUltra and LSD. They had a hearing and banned LSD. And a reporter turned to the people from the CIA and said after that hearing, Wow, what are you going to do now with your mind control program without LSD? They didn't even skip a beat. They looked at her and said, well, we'll turn to the pharmaceutical companies to see what they come up with in the way of a drug used for psychoanalysis or something that we can use for mind control. I mean, that icon, okay, you just put up a big neon sign saying, hey, you want a good big government contract? Come up with a new drug for us. 
and uh, Lily had been delivering the LSD to them for a decade. They were the ones with the contract. They were the ones who immediately lost the contract when Congress banned the drug. When you put hmm. the timelines together, to me, it is very clear because my brother was living in that area right about the time LSD was banned. And he met someone working for Eli Lilly who was head over heel with the idea that they were coming up with a new drug that was going to get rid of depression altogether. That was Prozac. I believe that Prozac replaced LSD. Right. And it took care of their contract between the CIA and Eli Lilly. Kept them in business. And that's probably why they were hurting pretty bad about the time that they were getting Prozac out there and getting it approved because their own scientists came to the head sci the head scientist for Lilly and said, We got a problem here because it looks like Prozac's actually causing suicide. And I don't know what he was on, but he actually enough to write in a memo that Lily couldn't afford to lose Prozac so what they were supposed to tell the families of those who died of suicide on Prozac was that it must have been caused by their underlying depression they were not to tell them that it was the drug he put it in a memo. <laughs> Luckily, our attorneys found that. And they settled tons and tons of cases to keep it out of the news. But people are continuing to die. So and terrible deaths. <clears throat> so that's the background on how, how the drug, the, the psychotropics really begin to hit the market. It, it's all right. about you know the the government contracts are canceled, so now we have to go somewhere else to to recoup our money, so to speak. So we'll put it on the market as an antidepressant, and it'll 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 pay for itself that way. And and I would dare to guess by the number of people who are using psychotropic drugs right now, it's off the charts. They're they're making money hand over fist. Oh yeah. So. And they had 17 points they wanted to achieve with that new drug. And I saw a list of that. Captain Joyce Riley shared that with me at a press conference in about 96 down in Southern California. And when I read that list, I couldn't breathe. <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh, it it took the wind right out of me because there was only one thing I saw on the list that I had not seen Prozac causing. I can't remember what the one thing was, but anyway, 
I do remember a whole lot of the other 16 that it fit perfectly. And one of those is something we're seeing absolutely everywhere that I've been warning about for 30 years. What's that? And that is change in gender. <laughs> let's let's table that for a second. I want to come back to that. <laughs> okay. I, I want to explore that deeply here. But yeah, there's but only want, about a hundred of those now, I think. <laughs> right. I want okay. I want I want to go down the line of, of back to your story. So you start okay. the group. You head up one group, it morphs into the other. You're testifying at the FDA. You're on Geraldo. You're on News. You, you're getting out there, right? And I mean, look, it's not hard to find, right? If you just go Google right. and Blake Tracy, you're going to see everything come up. And you're articulate. You're well-spoken. You got your facts straight. So at, at any point, do you feel like, oh, starting to make a dent we're starting to wake people up was there a point at which you felt like hey we're we're doing something and and can you can you tell me about that i started testifying in criminal cases involving the drugs and back in 1992 and uh then I got very interested as well in the whole Fen Fen Redux mm-hmm. fiasco. And I don't know how many people remember what a horrible thing that was and how many died from that. And how they were jerked off of the drug cold turkey. But right. they those drugs worked very much the way these antidepressants do. And they cause similar problems. Uh, in fact, I had one woman who's a very well-known psychologist who is on television a lot. She said when she came off that drug, she sat with a knife to her chest for days. She said, mm-hmm. had my mother not come to stay with me, I would have used it. Jeez. And that was from the abrupt withdrawal from that drug. Right. So anyway, um, what happened, they were pulled in 97. And right about that time, Dr. Candace Pert, whose research was used to develop Prozac, She was not involved, but they took all of her research and used it because she came up with the serotonin binding process or neurotransmitter binding process that made them possible. And she came out publicly in Time magazine calling these drugs monsters that she wished her research would never have been used in any way to create these drugs. And she here she is one of the top psychopharmacologists in the country. So I, I want to back up. Okay. You you get that woman comes out and says, you know, these are monsters that, that I helped create. And you said you thought that that's going to be the end of it? 
I thought surely it would be the end of it here. She's the one that that did all the research that made them possible. And here so she you was took, calling them monsters. And so you felt like you were not to take them. <laughs> right. So you thought you thought, okay, this is the end. See the the light at the end of the tunnel. We're gonna win this thing, right? That that's probably what you're thinking. Like, how much more evidence do I need? The person who created this, they're uh-huh. calling them monsters, and we're gonna we're gonna rid rid ourselves of this permanently. What and happened? I contacted her and we joined forces. Yeah, so so what what was the result of that? Uh nobody cared. And why do you think that why why do you think that is? Well, there was no media. The CIA no media coverage. Media, that's what Project Mockingbird was all about. So if this was, which I now do believe it was, something that was ordered by them. Okay. Of course, there would be no media. And it was really hard, you know, getting anything out. I I was expert in comedian Phil Hartman's murder-suicide. I had been at a hearing for a woman in Lyman, Wyoming, just mm-hmm. the day before that happened. And it was identical. It was the nicest lady in town who was being prosecuted for murdering her husband. And when I spoke with her, she said, I can't tell you what happened. All I know is I came to and I was standing at the top of my stairs with a smoking gun in my hand. And my husband was laying in another room in bed with a bullet through his head. So I assumed I must have done it. So I walked over to the sheriff's office and turned myself in. And she was on Paxil. So anyway, I had just driven back from Lyman, Wyoming down to Salt Lake the night before and woke up the following morning to what had just happened in Encino, California, in the Hartman. And you were an expert witness in the Phil Hartman case? Yes. Holy cow. And you you seem to have been involved in some pretty big things. Look, if, if, if you're being called as an expert witness... I can speak to you just from my line of work, uh, not podcasting, but what I do for a job. If you're called as an expert witness, you can bank that, that pardon the expression, you got your crap together, right? I mean, you're, right. you're respected. What you say can be taken almost as gospel. So you're getting called to these things and you keep sounding the alarm. It, it's got to be frustrating that, that despite what you're doing, it, it's not making any inroads. Um, it gets worse. <laughs> yeah, it gets worse. Um, well, I got the Hartman case on Dateline. And that apparently made him really mad. Um, but hang tight. Who's the, who, who did you make mad? The dr- <laughs> Pharma. Everybody okay. calls them the Pharma Mafia. <laughs> right. 
And and uh, I got called in on a deposition in a case that I had nothing to do with. And the attorney said, look, I need a favor. And uh, you're the one they want. <laughs> he said, I know you have nothing to do with this case, but I need something and they'll give it to me if I give them you. <laughs> and I said, okay, if it'll help this case, I'll do it. So I went in and they asked one or two questions about the 13-year-old that hung himself after only seven days on Zoloft. And then they changed it and said, weren't you the one that called the Hartman family the day of their deaths? I said, uh, no, it was actually the day after. I said, why didn't you make the call? Who made it my responsibility? Why aren't you concerned enough about what is happening with your drug? That you're out there following up on these tragedies to see if your drug might be involved. The next person who dies could be your wife, your son, your daughter. Of course, I got nothing but the poker face that they're trained to produce. So... Anyway, obviously, I made them pretty upset, I guess. And they were upset that I was looking at a federal judge who had just killed his wife and himself. I knew he was on an antidepressant, but after that little meeting, I knew which antidepressant he was taking. True. So but when you they start, I... ordered all of my transcripts from kindergarten on. It, all of my email, it was just crazy. It was like going after a gnat with an atom bomb. So, so but what, after what did, that, the next year is when Columbine happened. Right. Let's let's stop and, there first, because again, I want to get into to those things. Let's uh, l- let me ask you this: once you start making a dent. Because even, even though they're kind of trying to suppress your voice a little bit, you're still making inroads, right? You're still making progress. At that, what happen? What what do the drug companies do in response to all the testimony that you're given, right? Because you're not just in court. You're on Nightline. You're on um, Fox News. You're on Geraldo. You're you're taking it to them, so to speak. What do they do in response to you? Well, that's what they did. I also found out that the year the book came out, that really went into all of this, came out the summer of 94. And the following year, my small hometown in Arizona became the suicide capital of the nation. And the attorneys I was working with were shocked. They said, how on earth is this going on in your little hometown? I said, good question. <laughs> if was you there- know who Sheriff Richard Mack is, 
I, I grew up with him. He was the sheriff in our town at the time. He now heads the Constitutional Sheriff's Group. Okay. And um, is trying to help sheriffs understand that they are basically the ultimate power in their counties. Mm-hmm. And can hold off just about anybody. <laughs> right. So he's out there doing that. He said, when I contacted him about what was going on, I've had to bring three of my best buddies home in body bags on those drugs while I've been sheriff here. And, and so you think that, that just to make sure I understand you correctly here, you think I that think the drug they com- flooded the area with the drugs. Okay. All right. Did they do Knowing anything that else? They'd get somebody. That, right. You know, and yeah. they have taken out plenty of my family doing that. Was there anything more personal? Did they ever, you know, phone calls or threatened legal action or anything like that? No, just the wanting all of my email and all of my transcripts from kindergarten on, you know, that I think was the big show of power. Gotcha. Because they sent their lead attorney after me. Wow. Wow. But never wanted me to come to Colorado. And I said, if you want me, you got to come to Salt Lake. Right. (laughs) Right. And so they're, 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 estimation they're they're doing everything they can to be like look we can we can do certain things here but they they don't ever go for a lawsuit because i'm guessing that your documentation and your science is pretty irrefutable would that would that be a correct assessment oh the evidence against these drugs is absolutely overwhelming so overwhelming that their own expert in a mass murder suicide case out of wyoming um actually testified to the fact that, and I quoted him extensively in my book, and uh, he came on that case and testified that what you should expect from a drug that inhibits the metabolism of serotonin, these are serotonin reuptake, which is metabolism, Mm-hmm. serotonin reuptake inhibitors and he said when you inhibit that metabolism what you should expect is impulsive murder or suicide which is exactly what happened in this case that was settled in 2001 and the jury ruled that the drugs were the cause right the main cause so they awarded like six point four million to the family for four deaths, as if that could ever compensate. But anyway, right. Um. So that's what I'm saying is the evidence is clear. It's absolutely overwhelming. Uh, there was also evidence that the drugs are causing what is called a REM sleep disorder. Mm -hmm. And 
that's what happened to Phil Hartman's wife. Uh, she was started on the drug by her son's psychiatrist, 10 year old son. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he I had to help him wean off too. But he suggested because she was burned out from writing a screenplay. She was writing a screenplay about a woman who shoots her husband in his sleep. Interestingly enough. And the doctor prescribes Zoloft to her. And she called him back about three weeks later and said, hey, I can't take this drug. I can't handle it. And so he said, well, let's cut your dose in half. You don't ever do that. That will throw you into horrible withdrawal. And this REM sleep disorder has long been known as a drug withdrawal state. And it is a disorder where you act out your nightmare. Oh, geez. Three weeks later, she got up and pulled the gun out of the nightstand, Bill. That apparently woke her up somewhat, the gun going off. And so she got in her car and drove over to a friend's house. The friend was a lot of help. He thought maybe cocaine had helped bring her out of it. (laughs) Because her speech (laughs) was really slurred. And she threw up like three times while she was there. And she kept saying, I can't tell. I, I think I shot Phil, but. I can't tell if it's a nightmare or if it's real. And she wanted the friend to come with her to tell her what was real. And of oh, course, geez. when he came back with her and told her it was real, he walked out into the other room because, of course, he was going to call the police. And she picked up the phone in the bedroom and called her sister. And was just totally hysterical. She said, oh my gosh, Kathy, I've shot Bill. Why would I do that? There's no reason for it. And she was begging her to take care of the children. She was the one in their uh, paperwork, in their will, that was supposed to take the children if anything ever happened to them. Right. But. Anyway, she hung up and telling her to tell the children that mommy didn't know what happened and that she loved them. And she hung up and laid down next to him and shot herself. Oh, my gosh. But that disorder, that REM sleep disorder, there were doctors that were the top experts in that that had been doing some research on it and they found that right about that time they put out a study saying that 86% of those they were diagnosing with that disorder were on an antidepressant or had been taking one. Holy cow. Yeah. And it was, that was something that they had hardly ever seen 
before 8990 right at the time Prozac came out right holy cow so, so anyway i was actually on the phone with the chief of police in salt lake city talking to him about my friend who'd been killed at the salt lake family history library shooting who I had warned over and over and over again that he was working in the most dangerous place on earth, which everybody would probably say, what? <laughs> Salt Lake Family History Library? Right. And that is because so many people on these drugs start doing genealogy because they can't remember who they are. So they'll start doing genealogy to get more of an idea of their family and their own family history so that they feel that connection again that's gone for them because they can't remember who they are. And so okay. I, I explained all that to him. He was the he was a security guard that was killed in that shooting. Wow. And so, okay. anyway, I was talking to the chief of police, and that was right when Columbine was going on. And he said, do you think what's going on in Colorado right now is possibly these drugs? And I said, well, it could be, but I don't generally have two people go off the deep end at the same time on the drug. But okay. I said, if they commit suicide, you can count on it. Okay, let me stop you there because and I'm, they I'm were doing kinda, it right then. <laughs> yep, let, let me let me kind of catch up here a little bit and, and recap. So you you see all this stuff personally, and this is what gets you involved in it. Right. In, in, in all the misuse and overprescribing of these psychotropic drugs, it, it touches you personally. You get involved with some other folks. You get a group going. You tell why you're out there. You're vocal. You're on Geraldo. You're on Fox News. You're on um, Dateline. I mean, you're an expert witness. You encounter some push pushback. So and right after coast to coast, I was their top guest. <laughs> Holy then God. I really got pushed back. That's when it started big time. Was there something else that we didn't discuss that escalated even even more than them flooding your hometown with those drugs? Yeah. What happened? Well, I was called in to be the expert in the Columbine shooting. Okay. And yeah, let's hold, hold Mark on one Taylor. Okay. Let, hold off one second because I'm I'm going to sum up here a little bit as far as what I saw, right? Someone who wasn't involved in the kind of work that you were doing exposing these psychotropic drugs drugs. Now, I graduated in 1996. I grew up uh, most of my teenage years in a small town in western Idaho. And I'm going to tell you exactly what life was for me 
during those years, right? You had everybody that had a, a truck in that town that was a student. I mean, we had all had guns. in the back. Yeah, of the we, had, we had we had rifles in the back of the window. Yep. We would we would go. You know, I I can I could tell you we would we would go to football practice, and after football practice, it's like, hey, let's load up and let's go blast ducks at Okuda's farm, right? And Okuda was a nice old man, and we'd go blast ducks. And you know what? There was absolutely zero school shootings that I can remember. I mean, you may have had an outlier but nothing major and then columbine happens yep and from there it's an escalation so now i i I, that's important because and you can correct me if i'm wrong about that time is when you know probably four or five previous to 96 i believe is when column no it was 99 that columbine happened if i remember correctly 99 or 2000 that's right 99 so Mine happens in 99 but if but you had already worked several school shootings before that right but five or six years previous they weren't real common, right but i no. think what you saw and, and and i'm only using my my anecdotal evidence of not knowing really anybody in school who was on you know psychotropics but about that time is about the time you know that 99 three, four years previous is when they start really handing them out to children. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. So, and then from 90 on, it seems to be one of those things that it happens way more frequently and there's no signs of it slowing down. So now I want you to talk about Columbine because I think this is a benchmark moment in, in, in recognizing that there might be a correlation between kids who are on the, uh, um, the psychotropic drugs and school shootings. So tell me about your experience with Columbine and then tell me what, what takeaway is for you. Can you see a, a, a connection between a, a causal connection between kids who are psychotropic drugs, school shootings, and to your best knowledge, documented knowledge, how many of the perpetrators of those school are on psychotropic drugs well i tracked them until about 2011 when the woman who was helping me with a few things passed away and uh i wasn't able to track them anymore well i kind of tracked them but not like i was before okay so Uh, so you can find that Oh, you ahead. can find that at ssristories.net. And there's a long list of who was on what when they did the school shootings. Okay, so tell me about your experience then with Columbine. Okay, I was called in on that case. And as soon as Columbine happened, I started appearing on Coast to Coast. And I was doing three and four hour interviews with them. They had like 20 million listeners at that point. And the host that I was doing most of the shows with had told me, okay, it happened in 99. This was 2001. 
right after Andrea Yates drowned her five kids, whose case I also worked. Um, then I don't know how many people remember Christopher Pittman's case. Christopher was in South Carolina and he shot and killed his grandparents at age 12 and burned the house down. Anyway, that case had just happened. I had done an interview on that. The host told me that I was actually getting more listeners than any guests that they had. You know, I don't know why he told me that, but he just did. And I just said, well, that's because so many people are being affected by these drugs. It doesn't really have anything to do with me. It's just, you got to understand how many people are in trouble on this stuff. Right. And it was probably a month later, maybe two months later, that the station changed hands. And I was never on again. And right about that time, same time, Amazon put up on their site that my book was out of print. (laughs) And I called them and called them and called them and threatened them with attorneys. I said... (laughs) You guys, it's not out of print. There are copies just standing here ready to be shipped to you whenever you want them. Because they have been carrying my book. And um, they refused to take it down. And I said, you know you're killing people. They're desperate wanting answers about these drugs. And if they don't find the answers to know what to do, they're not going to make it. I said, you've got, this is a terrible thing that you're doing. You've got to put it out there. It's the only place people can go to know what to do. They refused. They left it that way for two years. Holy cow. Yeah. So let me, let so me that ask was you pretty that. much the end of everything. Gotcha. Let, let me ask you this, Ann. Were, were the two perpetrators of the Columbine school shooting, were they on any psychotic medication? Oh, yeah. Both of them? I firmly believe both of them were. I think we have enough evidence. But <laughs> this is what happened. I had called the coroner, told her that I wanted copies of the toxicology on both boys. And Eric's came through. He was on Luvox. And I waited and waited and waited and never got a thing on Dylan. So I finally called this coroner. And I've worked with coroners all across the country, you know, by then for Mm -hmm. years. I called and I said, look, Eric's 
toxicology came through, but I never got anything on Dylan. What happened? And there was this dead silence. And then she said, well, Dylan was pretty much a weird kid anyway. I'm going, <laughs> my gosh, this is the coroner? <laughs> How the hell did uh, she know? I, I, I'm exactly. sorry. Let, let, me I know. Break let, me, let me break in here real quick. So he was a weird kid anyway. You're a coroner, right? I'm guessing exactly. you're not hanging out at a high school. And I'm guessing you're also not collecting you know, uh, anecdotal evidence from this kid's schoolmates or his parents, or you're not an investigator in that sense. How the hell would you know that he, a quote, weird kid? So that True. was her response to you when you were like, hey, I need the toxicology because you were called in on that case, correct, Dan? Yes. So you're called in, and, and who called I'm you in on that case? I'm still working that case. You're still working that case. Who who called you in on that? I'm trying to put this, I, and I know it seems roundabout, but I'm trying to I'm trying to give the full picture here. Who called Mark, you in on that case? Mark Taylor and his mother. Mark was who? shot six to thirteen times. He was known as the Columbine Wonder Boy because he survived that. Um. So it's this boy's parents that reaches out to you and said, they, they somehow stumble upon and say, can you help? Can you come take a look? And so you're called in right. by a victim's family and you're just trying to get answers. And they give you the, the report for Eric and he, it shows he's on psychotropics for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And then when you ask for documentation on Dylan's toxicology, her response is, he was a weird kid anyway. Mm -hmm. Now, look, yep. I, I grew up in a very rural area, and I'm just going to tell you, that's more BS than I've ever shoveled for any farmer in my life. <laughs> I will agree. And, and, and did you I, ever, Like did I you said, ever, I've worked with so many coroners, I've never heard a line like that ever. Did you ever get a toxicology report for Eric? Or no. Dylan, excuse me. So they never sent it to you? No. His records were sealed. His parents had it, everything sealed. Which I also have never Holy heard hell. of in a murder case, especially a mass murder case. Yeah. I mean, that one made world news. That one wasn't just U.S. news. That's world news. And they had the toxicology sealed on it. Mm -hmm. By whose order? Who, who, who ordered that that be sealed? the parent now i'm going to back up here and you've worked these things a lot more than i have how does the parent have jurisdiction when it's the child that's the perpetrator shouldn't that be be something that's admissible into court when because there's still sort of a trial that happens yes. isn't there of a fact-finding trial or of some sort right right and it should have been public knowledge so the judge went along with it. The judge was like, yeah, we're going to we're going to honor parents request to have it sealed. And I get it. Right. I, I'm not trying to find fault with with the boys parents. I mean, they they suffered a loss, too. But good hell. At some point, if, if we want this solved, we got to get down to 
to to looking at me all the causes that happened and 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 look i'm 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 not ready to say because I don't have all the evidence that that was the sole cause, right? I think that there's many things that probably contributed to this, but that's definitely something, especially if it's affecting, you know, your your outlook, you know, it, it, your, your sense of reality. I can only mm-hmm. imagine what a volatile cocktail. And and look, I'm gonna I'm gonna look really silly to a lot of people here, but when when you're pumping yourself full of psychotropics. You're playing first shooter, first shooter video games that um, sensitize you to the thought of killing, right? And we know at some point in that shooting, one said to the other, "This is just like Doom." Doom being a a right. first person game where you shot the place up, and and you're just ex- bathing in violence and psychotropics. That's definitely at least a contributing dream from reality right so uh, <laughs> holy cow so so you said you're working that case yeah what what kind of things I mean, have happened as far as uh, uh um it's horrible on the case well the drug companies put an end to it and the way they did it, you will understand why everyone calls them Pharma Mafia. <laughs> um, the attorney that took over the case was Senator John DeCamp. Does that ring a bell? No. <laughs> John DeCamp was from Lincoln, Nebraska. Okay. He's the one that wrote the book on um, child abuse at the boys' home there. I can't remember the name of the book. Anyway, uh, he was really well known. But he was facing back surgery. And I had a talk with him. He was supposed to go in for surgery just before the case would be presented to the court. I said, John, (laughs) you've got to be out of your freaking mind if you are going to go under a knife when you're going after these drug companies in court. I said, hello. (laughs) Well, he went ahead anyway. And he did not come out in his right mind. He came out drugged out of his mind. His back surgery, of course, is really tough. He therefore did not meet discovery, which was the end of the case. I had three of the top attorneys in this country ready to step in and help on the case. That's how convinced they were. In the meantime, one of Dylan's close friends came forward and spoke with Mark Taylor's mother to let her know that she was trying to help him wean off Zoloft and Paxil. 
So I don't think that kid would bother to make that up, but you know, who knows? It's irritating. Right. And, and, and I got to point out that shows a tremendous amount of integrity on your part that, that you go so far to say that, that it's hearsay, right. In the sense that I would, I would bet my bottom dollar that, that he was on those psychotropics. But again, it shows a lot of integrity that you're willing to say, I can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And it, right. To the veracity well, of the there was a lot done. of evidence because he and Eric both, when they broke into that van uh-huh. the year before, they were both put in an anger management program, which okay. always automatically means you're going to go on one of those drugs. That's right. what they give as antidepressants. Right. I... I, I was just pointing out that that you really I, do have your have your crap together. The fact that you're willing to say I can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, I believe it, but I can't prove it on a shadow of a doubt. It just lends more credence to your to your your professionalism in in pursuing this. So yeah. let, let me let anyway. Let's end, there. let's end the Columbine thing there for a second. Let me ask you this. I wish. Right, right, exactly. But but let's. Let's let me ask you this question. So we know that from 1999, when you cover Columbine, when you're on that case, you guys are keeping track of things till 2011 until you have a business partner that passes away. You're you're tracking all this. What would you say the percentages are of children who commit school shootings? How many of them are on prescription medication? Psychotropics. About 90 percent. Okay. So let me ask you this. If let's just go back in history. Let's say you have 90% of cancer victims that have smoked cigarettes. What's a good causational conclusion there? That cigarettes. That smoking causes lung cancer, right? Mm -hmm. But yet we can't seem to draw a conclusion definitively or let me rephrase this. Experts are refusing to draw the same conclusion when you have 90% of the kids who are on psychotropic medication that have committed school shootings are, are using those psychotropics. And right. we won't cause that causation. Right. Even when the pharmaceuticals own experts have testified that what you should see when a drug does what these do is impulsive murder or impulsive suicide or both. And they tell you in the drug commercials, right? That's the other thing that blows my mind is that in the drug commercials with the dude that always on and talks 10,000 miles an hour when he goes may cause suicidal thoughts, (laughs) we're still not ready to drink causation there all right that's nuts that's craziness and how how do you manage to look at all this and not lose your mind i don't know (laughs) it's getting harder and harder and harder 
here's the other thing that blows my mind is that while you have done a tremendous service to people everywhere on getting this out, I have to go dig for your testimony. I have to go look for your, um, your interviews. Now, granted, they're not hard to find, but you, you got to get specific when you want to start finding stuff. Right. But yet, and, and I'm just going to take call it what it is. It takes a guy who is a Mormon fundamentalist quasi rodeo clown to get on a podcast to get, get more word out. It's, it's maddening to me. I don't understand it. Um, so you see all this happen. You see all these school shootings and in the back of your mind, you look and be like, I'll, I just know that he's on some sort of psychotropic. Oh yeah. And I start looking, but there's so many at this point. I just, right. I can't even begin to keep up. And I really don't know why more people don't care enough that they're trying to do something too. As I looked, when I first saw this 30 years ago, I said, oh, my gosh, somebody has got to do something because I don't want my kids living in the world we're going to see down the road. And here we are. It's so scary as heck. So let, let me... I and wish again, everybody I, knew. I wish yeah. everyone knew what I know about these drugs. Well, and it's not for lack of trying on your end, right? I mean, you've been very vocal. You you published your stuff. You can go to your website and and find all of this information. Um, there is on the website at drugawareness.org. There is... Um, what did I call it? I put out a post called evidence, evidence behind school shooting and antidepressants or something like that. And it's got everything that you would see in a court case to prove that they are being caused by the drugs, starting right. with the pharmacist that prophesied clear back in Oh, when was that? About 1999 that he called me and he said, look, this is what we're going to see as a result of these drugs. And he said, we're, we're going to have Columbine and Red Lake everywhere. There's going to be school shootings everywhere. And then it's going to start rubbing off on normal people, the kind of manic behavior that these drugs cause he was he said please tell me that you and I are not the only ones that see this I wish I could tell him and you've had to watch knowing it, it would be a lot like watching a freight train coming at a car and you just know it's coming and there's nothing you can do to stop it right okay what it feels like so let me let's let's switch ge gears here a little bit. let's talk hear the rest of Columbine. yeah let's hear the yeah we might as well you we, haven't we, even we, heard the dirt yet <laughs> yeah we need to 
hear the rest of column mine. We we need to do that. Let's let's do that. Okay. Mark Taylor's attorney's drugged out of his mind after surgery. He doesn't meet discovery. So that's the end of his case because you cannot ever not meet discovery. So he needed a new attorney. Well, somehow somebody found one that used to work, supposedly used to work for the drug companies. But he had switched sides and now wanted to help Mark with his case. Well, they suddenly called as soon as Mark turned 21. They uh, called him in unexpectedly for a settlement hearing. His mother was not allowed in. She stood out in the hallway with the reporter from the Denver Post who'd been covering the case from day one. And they were out there all day long waiting for Mark, who was in that room alone with all these attorneys trying to come up with a settlement. Finally, I get a phone call. Well, I talked to the attorney that was supposed to be Mark's attorney in the middle of that. I talked to him over the phone. And I did have a witness on the phone with me because I wanted somebody who could back up what happened. <clears throat> and I said, look, I don't know what's going on in there. But Mark Taylor did just turn 21. But legally, he is not 21. I said he was shot. Six to 13 times. The damage was so great. The doctors couldn't tell how many bullets entered his body and left. So they estimated it was six to 13 times. His own doctor that was treating him after the shooting called his personal family physician and said, I have one of your patients here. He's dead, but he's talking to me. I said he laid there for at least an hour bleeding to death. I said, do you know how much oxygen deprivation that is to the brain? Do you know that causes mental retardation, which means it takes you back several years? Mark's not 21 legally. You could force him into a settlement, but it's not going to be legal. Well, I got a phone call from Mark several hours later. And he said, oh, he said, well, I'm out of there. And I signed everything so I don't have to go to jail. What? I said, Mark, who the heck told you that you were going to have to go to jail? And he said his attorney. I said, Mark, you didn't have to sign anything. 
Oh. You know what they had him sign? They had him sign that he would settle with them as long as they made a $10,000 donation to a charity of his choice in his name. That was his settlement for being shot six to 13 times. So it's so bad. You, you look six to six to 13. That's a wide range, right? So, yeah. I mean, let's just discount that for a second. He, okay. he, he has brain damage from bleeding out on the floor. He's supposed to have an attorney with him that has his best interest in mind. Mm-hmm. And he's and, telling him he's got to go to jail if he doesn't sign. And he walks out of there with nothing. A one-time donation to a charity in Mark's name. And guess which charity he picked out? Which one? American Cancer Society. Guess what Mark's being treated for right now? Cancer? Yeah. And guess why? Why? He was set up. He was set up several years later. And a false accusation was made. Mark had his own book out on what happened to him. It was called I Asked God Answered. A column by Miracle. And uh he would always stop by Border Books to see how many books he was selling. And he had stopped by Borders Books. Somebody said one thing that that worried people about Mark is that he would pace a lot. Mm-hmm. He was actually sitting out in front of Columbine talking to his friends about scriptures when he got shot. Was he else? No. Okay. But he wanted to be a preacher. Okay. He was talking to his LDS friends. <laughs> gotcha. But anyway, um, so he was sitting when he was shot. And anybody who's the like that is gonna not want to be sitting anywhere for a long time you're gonna want to be moving so that you're not in front of a bullet so mark would pace a lot back and forth and i don't know if that's what happened but they they accused him of threatening to blow the place up (laughs) and there's interviews with Mark and I just before that happened when Virginia Tech happened. He was out in Iowa visiting me and we had the news there come and interview us. And you watch that and you know there's absolutely no way Mark Taylor ever made that kind of threat. I mean, he was telling everybody to forgive everyone. You just have to see it. (laughs) It's Channel 8 in Iowa. 
but it's on our website too, on our YouTube. So, but anyway, they accused him of that. He was taken to a psych ward and his mother and I knew the head of that psychiatric unit. And she told both of us there's absolutely no reason for him being there. But somebody started him on the drugs that Mark was testifying against and had sued. They started him on the antidepressants. Holy cow. Yeah. I got him out a couple months later, but his mother was afraid to stay in Colorado, moved down to New Mexico, and did not have the drugs with her to wean him off. So he went into cold turkey withdrawal. They were visiting in Arizona when she thought he was having a seizure and ran him in to um, a local hospital. They immediately looked at his records and said, oh, he's not having a seizure. He's got a mental problem. And they stuck him in some unit, and he's never gotten out. Jeez. They have drugged him and drugged him and drugged him and drugged him because he is in a guest a rest home or whatever they call it, assisted living. That's what they call it. Some assist. Anyway, they forced him to take the vaccines. After the second one, he was so nauseous he could not eat for like three months. More than maybe a bite or two. He lost 70 pounds. And then as soon as he got the booster, the third shot, within a week, and he had just been tested before that, there was no sign of anything. He got a clean bill of health. But the week after he got the booster, he was diagnosed with cancer. He's now going through chemo. Jeez. So he would have been better off dying at Columbine. Let, let me let me wrap my mind around this for a second. So you have a kid. What's that? Makes me sick. You have a kid who endured a horrific incident at Columbine. And he got so much attention at the FDA hearing. And that's when I think they decided they had to get rid of the kid. He has... He, he testifies at the FDA hearing. He suffered some sort of brain damage because of blood loss. He has an attorney that sells him down the road to the drug company's attorneys. Right. I would really like to know if his attorney happened to come into a lot of money. I'd imagine his bank account got pumped up a little bit. I'm just guessing. Probably um, a pretty good guess. Then... He uh, gets accused of saying that he would blow some, blow a place up. He then gets put into a psych ward, is drugged up, 
and then somehow comes down with cancer and is now fighting for his, his life. Right. I haven't heard from him for a couple of weeks now, so I'm on pins and needles. Let me ask you this. Was there information Mark had that may have pointed back to the drug companies? Um, Did he know for a fact that maybe, because you could never Dylan's toxicology report, correct? Right. Is there any connection between him and Dylan before the shooting? No, he was shot by Eric. He was shot by Eric. Yeah, so his case was solid. <laughs> okay. And remember, uh, I had three of the top law firms in the country ready to join in on his case. He had a good case. That's how good it was. And they just were not going to allow the, I say they, the, the drug companies were not going to allow a significant settlement to happen because that would, that would basically say, yeah, no, something's wrong and, and we're at fault. That's right. Jeez. That is so dirty, Ann. That's how they work. <laughs> so let me ask you this. What do you think the end goal is? with flooding society with all these psychotropic drugs? Well, I think we've just seen it. Just cash? You think that's that's the bottom? Not, well, yeah, cash, but the whole vaccine thing, I don't think you would have had near as many people bow down and do it. Well, and that's kind of where I'm going here. So, because we know that these look just from my with my son, these drugs are designed and you could tell me if I'm wrong to make you a lot more susceptible to a either docile or B open to suggestion. Correct. Yep. Yep. That was on their list of what they wanted. So they wanted a docile society that was open to suggestion. Uh-huh. And who are so asleep, they can't figure out what's right. Now, they lose their connection to God. Yep. Now, let they me all report that. Now, let's let's throw in everything else. Right. Because here's what I'm noticing. More so than than then I care to admit, but here's what I'm noticing is that you have kids today who are raised on devices, right? They, they yeah. look at screens constantly and they continually see um, just of people that are only happy, right? That are only living their quote best life that are reaching every goal that they very easily and they're getting a misconception of what life really is right and so they start to feel depressed and there's a hole kids that can't be filled and rather well, than and they're they're saying you know you got so much to worry about 
right. got this virus. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and so we have a, a generation now that I never thought I'd hear these clinical anxiety. They're diagnosed right. with clinical anxiety disorder. <laughs> and the right. solution is let's put them on more drugs, more psychotropics that will make them more docile, which puts them into a state where they want to do nothing but look at devices because let's face it. I mean, you, you look at some of these poor kids who are drugged out of their mind. They don't do anything else. Right. And they, they just have no desire for that. So they're socially awkward and we've replaced God with, with screen times and with influencers and it, you know, Look, I, I'm not a physician. I don't pretend to know everything. I don't pretend to know a lot of things really well. But what I can, what I can say is that just like alcohol or other stimulants or depressants make it hard to hear the spirit of the Lord. Yep. I imagine that any of those psychotropics have the same effect. And so yep, there's, a spiritual the pineal gland. Yep, there's a spiritual component here that is insidious. That is, look, it's, it, it's damn demonic. I don't know how else to put it. Right. So you have a whole generation of kids with a God shaped hole in the center of them that can't get filled with anything else, no matter how hard they try. And it's no wonder that these kids are, are, are acting out the way they're acting out with, with shooting. They just want to feel something. Am, am I off base in any of that? Not in the least, except that these drugs come from the very pit of hell. Only part you left out. So, what's the answer then? Well, let, let's not go there yet. Let's not go there yet. Let's let's move on. Move on from from one, you know, effect of these psychotropics, which is a loss of sensation. Kids just want to feel something. I find what one of the Columbine shooters say to be very revealing, dude, this is just like doom. He's getting off on it, right? He, he gets a sensation from killing another individual. Oh yeah. Yeah. You if you go into our website and start looking at, um, there's a movie that I did. Oh, 2002. I think called drugging of our children. It's on the front page of the website. And uh, you can hear the kids talk about it. What they that go they, through. That they just empty, right? That they just, they yeah. can't feel anything. Yeah. But when they get off, they say, you know, they're, they've got their life back. It's just sad. And they make false accusations of abuse as well. 
That's the one thing I left out. I spoke about that in Wenatchee, Washington, right as my book was coming out in 94. And that's where the Pied Piper of Prozac lived. If you happen to see that Oprah show where they were pushing the drugs for kids, there was a psychiatrist. Uh, he wasn't a psychiatrist. He was a psychobabble pusher. Uh, <laughs> okay. A psychologist. Anyway. Got you. He actually came because he... He practiced there in Wenatchee. Even the BBC came out to cover it. And I lectured and I said, look, if you do not get your children off these drugs, you are going to have false accusations of abuse all over this town. Six months later, one little girl who had been on Prozac and just switched over to Paxil, became the foster child of the police chief. And with the switch of the drugs, that's one of the most dangerous times to be on them because you start going into withdrawal and yet you're adjusting to a new one on top of that. Brain doesn't take that very well. So she started going around town with the police chief as they'd drive past home. She'd say, we had an orgy there and an orgy at that house. And we had an orgy at this house. 11 years old. Jeez. She accused so many people that they had, in fact, 48 hours did a special on it. They had 43 people, finally, that were thrown in prison. The state of Washington ended up paying $100 million for wrongful imprisonment in that case. Did Jeez. I say 100000 No, you said $100 million. It was $100 million. <laughs> you, you said $100 million. I'm just... Okay, good. <laughs> no, I'm just trying to wrap my head around. Excuse me, wrap my head around all of this because it's it's so damn. They were in prison for two years. Primary president and her husband spent two years in prison. Jeez. They happened to be one of the homes she happened to point to. And their kids were the ones that went on 48 hours. The oldest one escaped from the CPS program and was able to get to 48 hours to tell everybody the truth. Now, and, uh, and I just I just got done reading an article that said it's some unreal amount, like 90% of all kids in care or on some form of psychotropic oh yeah medication oh yeah my kids my two i mentioned were adopted they always wanted a younger brother or sister and it was about 1995 
after my book was finished, I started calling around because I looked at all these different kids that were available for adoption. And I finally called the place. It was over in Denver, I think, the adoption group. And I said, you know, I explained that the kids really would like a younger brother or sister. And I said, but do you have any that aren't on drugs? Because that's what I do. And I really wouldn't want to start out a relationship with a child by taking them through drug withdrawal. And she lowered her voice to a whisper and said, you could tell she cupped her hand over the phone and said, isn't it terrible? We've got a doctor here who's drugging all the little kids and there's nothing we can do about it. And that's uh, what they do. The minute they get them, they're drugging them because most of them are on the drugs. Right. And they're crazy as loons. I mean, I had one guy that I helped him on a different case because of the drugs. He was in trouble. And before we went in to court, he said, look, can you help me with something? Because I used to be uh, whatever they call them, CPS uh, social counselor worker or something. Anyway, he said this was up in Michigan, I think it was uh, somewhere in the northeast. And he said, I was so out of it on Prozac that I was convinced that this family were Satan worshipers. And he said, I was so out of it. I was going to the meetings, letting them put blood and semen on me um, just so I could gather information on this family. And he said, I now that I'm off of the drug, I realized those were just delusions. None of that was real. He said, is there any way you can help me get those children back to their family? No. Oh, crap. How do you do anything now, years later, you know? Oh. So sad. I've, I've got so many horrendous things that have happened because of those people. They even went after the mother of the year for Utah to take her kids away because she refused to allow her adopted daughter who had seizures to take something like Adderall, which is a super strong stimulant, which caused seizures. <laughs> so the no. mother said, no, yeah. I don't want her on that. And that was enough for them to come and take her kids. Yeah, oh, jeez. It's Holy really cow. bad everywhere you look if you start putting the pieces together. Whew. All right. I don't even know what else to say to that. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm blown away at, at the whole prospect of, of all this. I know. I, and then you've got on top of that, the LAPD polygraph expert called me 
in the early 2000s too and said i'm looking for a doctor an expert somebody who can tell me why it is that all these cases of child abuse that i'm dealing with especially child sex abuse the perpetrator is on prozac or one of those drugs and I gave him the science as to why that happens. I mean, we we knew that many psychiatrists refused to give these drugs in the beginning because they so quickly produced mania, bipolar. That's what they usually call it now. And one of those types of mania that you can have is nymphomania. Jeez. So why wouldn't it produce child sex abuse? Can I mean, I, don't, I think I might have found one case of a teacher who seduced a student who was not on me. The female teacher seducing the male student. Ooh. The male teachers we had seen before. So right. I looked at something that was that we hadn't seen before, which was the women doing it. Well, that look. I'm going to be honest. You, men are kind of men can kind of be dirtbags. So, <laughs> I mean, that's well. that, but but you're right. It, it's more surprising when it's a female teacher that seduces a male student. It, it's right. it, it used to be an anomaly, right? And now that seems to be more and more commonplace. Everywhere. Well, Anne, we're two minute. We're two hours and forty one minutes into this battle. Um, I'm not going to take up your whole night but i want to end with this let's say because this show is geared towards mormons whether they're fundamentalists or mainstream lds i don't know what that that demographic looks like but let's say someone from an lds perspective is noticing that their child is struggling with you know depression or um you know, just anxiety. yeah, de- depression, anxiety. They're going to go to a doctor, and that doctor to say, you know what? Let's let's put them on, on, on you know Prozac or or any number of um, specific medications. And let's say this parent is awake enough to know that maybe that's not what they want to do. The spirit's working with them and say, don't don't do that. Right. What? can that parent do to help that child in lieu of psychotropic medication? What I did with mine. Which was? Put them on a hypoglycemic diet. Keep them away from sugar. That's the main cause. Back in the early 1900s, the annual consumption of sugar was about five pounds per person right you know what it is today you know i just hundred and six good gracious and sugar is chemically almost identical to cocaine right well and and not to mention all the sugar we get has been ultra processed 
right? That's why, yeah. I I look so and and I have a lot of guys. So I've I've went back to the gym hot and heavy the last six months. Lost some weight, feel good, and the trainer I work with off and on, he's he's not a god guy, right? He doesn't believe in creation or anything else he's an evolution guy but the principles are the same right in in the sense that our our ancestors whether you believe in creation or or evolution they 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 had a specific diet right and and massive amounts of sugar weren't in there they got sugar from fruit and honey and that's it yeah, right? and when God gave us sugar, he wrapped it in fiber. Exactly. And so now we're just taking straight sugar, and it can't be good for us, right? right. The, 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 yeah, so diet has to play a huge um, part of that. What about just getting away from damn device? How, how important do you think that is in today's society Maybe. to help a kid who's struggling with with uh with depression or anxiety very important they have studies out showing that exercise for half an hour three times a week is eight times more effective than an antidepressant have just out of curiosity have you looked at the have you done the same level of research on what screen time does to a kid quite uh, a bit because the screen time increases serotonin as well which is a lot of people who have been on these drugs cannot even use a computer because it increases their serotonin too much and they've already had it increase way too high to a toxic level on the drugs Right. So they so really have trouble with it. So so basically get the damn phone out of your hand, stop eating candy, and go play. And stay away from dairy. Okay. Because dairy dairy, the casein in dairy is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Wow. Yeah. Cool. You know, and there's a doctor that took uh, kids that were autistic, mm-hmm. which is a condition of elevated serotonin. He took them off of dairy and sugar. 80% of them had all their symptoms disappear. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The last word is kind of here. What? what would you want your parting words on the, on this episode to be? Um, just please learn as much as you can about all this. There's so many people, even if you're not on the drugs, there's somebody around you that is and needs help. They need to know the truth. And they need to understand the science behind it so that they know how to overcome the effects of the drugs. Because these things accumulate in brain tissue and stay there for quite some time. Right. So, 
I'd say go to drugawareness.org and get all the information you can. I should say read my book. Yes, <laughs> please. It, will be, it, it is online on our website at drugawareness.org. Okay, but is that a, it's coming that, out in hard copy again soon? I hope so. Well, why don't can they download the book for for a fee? Yeah, that's what I said. It's on our website at drugawareness.org. And, and how much is that? I don't know. <laughs> well, pretty and, bad, huh? I think it's like nineteen or something. I don't know. Perfect. Tell us the name of the book. Prozac Panacea or Pandora, our serotonin nightmare. Okay. I would encourage everyone listening to this to go get those two books. Though that's going to shed so much light on what what it is we're we're up against now at this point. And yeah. Blake Tracy, thank you so and, much for all the work you do. Uh huh. Thank you. All right. All right. Bye, everybody. <laughs>